This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is my intense pleasure to welcome both David Kessler and Anahad O'Connor. Um, so let me just tell you a little bit about them. Uh, David Kessler, as uh, most of you know, is the former commissioner of the United States FDA. He's the former dean here at UCSF. Um, boy, was that exciting times for us in obesity research. Um, David's pivotal role in the war against tobacco is now really part of our history, awe-inspiring history. And so we look to him here. He has helped write the playbook of how to deal with these complex issues of industry versus human health. Um, he's a tireless scholar as well as a public policy advocate. And as you could see in his writing, he's now written two bestsellers, The End of Overeating and his new book, Capture, which you can see the depth of his, uh, he's a, a huge thinker, he's incredibly scholarly. I can't believe how many citations are in his book. Um, and he uh, has important public policy messages in his book. So he'll be talking about his latest book. And then lastly, um, David, you might not remember this, but the reason we're all here today is because he gave us seed funding to the Center for Health and Community for Coast. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I, it's really our, such our pleasure and honor to introduce Anahad O'Connor, who is at the forefront of battling this epidemic with power in ways that none of us researchers will ever know or experience. His articles, his extremely thorough uh, articles that are often exposés end up often on the front page of the New York Times. He is the one who broke that terrible case of universities taking millions from Coca-Cola. And we now know the impact of these relationships, um, given uh, Kirsten Kern's recent work that has been all over the news um, about how the industry has um, determined our attitudes about sugar by influencing papers in New England Journal of Medicine, et cetera. So Anahad also um, broke the story uh, by Kirsten and her colleagues here at UCSF. Um, and soon he will also break our, our local story about our Healthy Beverage Initiative. We have um, some amazing early results showing the effectiveness of a simple sales ban. Uh, he's a public health hero, and we are, we're just honored to have him with us, and we're um, excited to hear your dialogue, so welcome. <laughs> so I've often been struck um, when interviewing people on both sides, uh, you know, covered issues that David has worked on, and um, you know, often I, I hear that there's so much respect for him. Even when I'm, when I'm interviewing people on the lobbying, you know, industry side, they say, you know, we've been, we've had to fight David, and we've been foes, but we've had such great respect for him. And you know, and everything that he was doing, and so, you know, after uh, everything he did at the FDA, David went on and became um, the dean of UCSF and Yale Medical Schools, and he wrote some really tremendous books: *The End of Overeating*, um, *A Question of Intent*, and now uh, *Capture*. And there's so much we could talk about today. Um, we've been talking about food all day, so I'd love to, to start there because I think there's a lot of overlap and there's sort of a theme, a theme you know, in what your books covered, which is sort of, um, you know, why is it that people engage in you know, 
self-defeating behaviors, whether it's you know, smoking or overeating or you know, um, mental illness, which you describe in this book. So could we sort of hear from you um, sort of how this latest book, Capture, came about? So it goes back uh, to the 1990s when I had to learn everything I could about nicotine. Um, we, were, we were deep into the um, investigation into the industry. You put up the definition uh, of food, but the definition of a drug is an article intended to affect the structure or function of the body. There's that word intended. And that meant we had to go, where the courts have interpreted that word intent, um, is the industry's intent. So in order to decide whether it was a drug, we actually had to go inside the industry where no one really had gone before to find out what they intended with nicotine. Um, and I had to learn everything I could about nicotine. And one of, the, one of my colleagues, um, and I never told him what we were working on, but I said, you have to teach me everything about addiction that you know was Jack Henningfield who was at the National Institute of Drug Abuse, one of the great addiction uh, experts. And he came in and he held these many seminars. And one of the ways that the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, NIDA, FDA, decides whether a drug is addictive is whether it's self-administered. Self-administration being the, the real the test of whether an animal will press a lever and work for food. Right? So how, you know, you can do progressive ratio tests um, or fixed ratio tests, I mean, or you can basically, you know, you do the experiment, um, you say no one could smoke here, and you go, you see people, are they willing to go work, i.e. expend effort, go outside in the cold, right? And so Jack was teaching me about self-administration, and in every one of his sort of um, self-administration test, the control was not just um, saline, it was not just water, it was always a sugar control. And I said, well, Jack, why are, do the rats press the lever for sugar? Right. Um, so in learning everything I could about addiction, and you know, the, the definitions that we were dealing with, this was 25 years ago, they were the sort of classical definitions that came out of the 64 Surgeon General's report. They were tolerance and withdrawal. Um, and we've learned a lot about addiction. And we've learned that you know, addiction, I think that now that we have a neurological, neuroscientific basis, is cue-induced wanting, mm. right? I mean, there's, there's um, that nicotine. I mean, Jerome Bruner taught me the, you know, the real key definition that you have to know if you want to understand reward is something that can change how I feel. Right? So I had to learn everything about nicotine. Right? And nicotine certainly, um, you know, most people would say, uh, was addictive. Um, and then uh, over time, left um, the agency, uh, but became very interested in that question of why that chocolate chip cookie um, attracts my attention. And, um, and what was the mechanism between nicotine and that chocolate chip, you know, uh, cookie, and were the same neurobiological mechanisms 
of, you know, in essence, cue-induced wanting, cue that sight, that smell, um, that arousal, that focused attention, that attentional bias, those thoughts of wanting that I act, right? Um, I, 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 I eat that cookie or I, I smoke that cigarette, I zone out, I feel better. Two minutes later, I go, why did I do that, right? And then if I get um, cued again, I engage in that cycle. Um, and learning the neurobiological basis, that certainly took me from nicotine to um, uh, food. Um, I remember the one day I, I sort of, I, um, Alyssa, Dr. Apple, I, I, um, I, this is one of those moments where we're talking and I, I say something and she looks at me as absolutely nuts because I say, well, what about hunger? What is hunger? Because right, we always think food is special, but isn't hunger, right? There's certain cues, my, my stomach. I mean, isn't hunger just cue-induced wanting, right? Um, and then, you, then um, the question became, well, are, they, are, are these neural circuits that are involved, the learning, memory, habit, and motivational circuits that underlie cue-induced wanting, are they unique to food? Right? And so everything we were taught about leptin and gerotin and, and all those compounds, they were just about food. Mm -hmm. right? Food was something special, and it is, no doubt. But are those mechanisms more broadly in place, and can they affect a range of affective conditions? Right? So does that mechanism right, that underlies nicotine, that underlies food, Right? That, um, that mechanism of attentional bias, does that um, really underline a range of affective conditions? Right? Um, or is it just food, and is food something special? Or uh, if you look at anxiety or depression or, or bipolar or eating disorders, something becomes salient that has an effective response, and is that is there a continuum you know, of what seizes my attention? But I mean, are the circuits really uh, designed just for food, or are they responsible for a range of uh, affective conditions? So that was the, the journey, a long answer to your question. Right. I want to go back and maybe take a step back to tobacco, because uh, you know, we're talking about food today, and you mentioned initially uh, the question of intent um, and, uh, and nicotine. You know, is it addictive? And I know when you were um, basically battling the tobacco industry, they were saying that they were putting nicotine or, or that the nicotine was there as a flavor sort of... Uh, In there for taste. And for taste, exactly. Right. <laughs> that, that was the... Uh, it was just natural. It was just found in... Right? Um, yeah. and, and I think you actually showed um, you guys showed that, in fact, they were manipulating the levels of nicotine, and you could show that from the, you know, low tar or light cigarettes to the regular cigarettes, and you sort of demonstrated, no, they, it wasn't about flavor. They knew exactly what they were doing in, in hooking people. So, um, uh, again, we, we started looking at how they were controlling nicotine, right? not because we were interested in manipulation, but because why were they um, 
limit, you know, why were they controlling nicotine? I mean, low tar, I mean, why do, when you think about it, you know, um, back in the 1950s, right, what happened? What was, what was the most significant article ever written on public health, certainly on smoking and health? Where was it published? Reader's Digest, right? 1954. And what happened uh, when that article came out, smoking by the car seat, right? It was really the first link between smoking and cancer. What did the industry do? What did the industry do when that article came out? They denied it, right? But what else did they do? What did they put in front of a cigarette? They put a filter. What did the filter take out? Tar. Tar. And what's the scientific definition of tar? It's all that gunk, right? So it's like 4,000 different chemicals. Right. But what's one of those constituents of tar that a filter will also take out? Nicotine. Nicotine. Now, why do people smoke? For the nicotine. For the nicotine. So what did the industry end up doing when they put filters in front of cigarettes? They had to up the level of nicotine otherwise. So that's how we started looking at the manipulation and what the industry's intent uh, was. And now before we move on to uh, the book and sort of the, the theme of, of capture, um, you know, Dr. Lustig was talking about the addictive qualities of sugar and the other additives in food. Do you see any parallels today uh, between what the, that industry was doing and perhaps the food industry today? Do you think that there's sort of a similar intent? So, so I think, I mean, he got exactly um, uh, right. When, when you look at the question of, and we did a very simple experiment, right? um, we took an essence, I think the, the paper we published back, what, six, seven years ago, is, um, had to do, you know, uh, what drives wanting in the vanilla milkshake, right? So what's in a vanilla milkshake? There's sweetness, there's fat, and there's flavor. And if you just look and do the animal experiments and see what an animal will press a lever for, right, um, there's no doubt that if you look um, at all the progressive ratio tests, sweetness drives the wanting. But when you add fat, it becomes synergistic on the fixed ratio test. So sweetness, without a doubt, I mean, certainly drives uh, work. People, animals and people will work for sweetness. But if I just gave you um, a package of sugar and say, go have a good time, <laughs> you'll say, what are you talking about? Now, maybe if you're, you're, you're you know, two-year-old or five-year-old, like, but if I now add to that sugar, I add fat, I add texture, I add color, I add mouthfeel, right? So I'm adding the different sensory levels, so I'm upping the level. And then if I add caffeine, there's a little pharmacological arousal by that. So it's not just sweetness alone that drives wanting. We also, it's the multi-sensory components that also um, create the signatures and uh, make it even more reinforcing. Mm. Is that your question? Absolutely. So, so, I, so I have your book here, right? Right. This is, so, and what's interesting, when you wrote this 2010, Yes. Well, I get that, yes. right? And if yep. you look at the index, this is how, <laughs> right? You look at the index. Okay. So sugar's not in the index. It's in the book. Okay. Right? I believe so. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
So do you think it's sugar, fat, and salt that drives uh, eating, or do you think it drives wanting? I think it does, and I think it's also, as Dr. Lustig said, uh, caffeine as well. Um, I mean, when he was describing that, I was thinking about this morning when I woke up and uh, was busy, and I hadn't had my, my daily espresso, and I was starting to get the headache, and I said, I need my fix. So this pharmacological arousal, I mean, from that uh, caffeine. Yes. But most people who drink the, the you know, the frappuccino, it's the, it's the fat and sugar is also in there, right? Right, right. So it's not just the caffeine. For me, though, I, I, I drink it black. And so for me, I think it is just, I think it's just the caffeine unless there's other. You want the arousal, things. right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but you're in the you're in the small minority of people absolutely. who I, I don't doesn't, I doesn't don't at all mind the bitter taste of caffeine right. or, or plain black tea. Um, I'm one of the health nuts who's more concerned with the health benefits of food than um, than the flavor for the most part. Um, but I have noticed that you know as someone who generally tries to avoid um, sugary foods. Um, when I'm out with my wife, for example, and she's eating ice cream and I take a bite, it suddenly becomes you know, something where it's almost uncontrollable, um, where I cannot stop eating the ice cream. There's no, <laughs> you know, I can, I can have a very delicious cheese and eventually you know, cut myself off, but with something like ice cream, it, there's just... Even though you grew, grew up essentially a vegetarian, right? Yes, exactly. With not a lot of uh, sugar in the house? with very little sugar in the house. Right. And I've noticed that um, if I sort of break the seal and I have the ice cream, you know, the, the bowl of ice cream or, or three bowls of ice cream at, at that point in time, um, you know, the next day I, I sort of have these cravings for sugar. But then if I resist and I fight it, then the next day it, it lessens and it lessens and then I can resist again. But if I break the seal again, it's suddenly very loss uh, of control. Yes, exactly. Right. A real loss of control. You you've lost all um, uh, ability to control yourself. Or I wouldn't you? say all ability, but it's a very overwhelming urge, right. um, and I think I would describe it as, as being to some extent captured. Uh, to lead into your your book, it's it's. I, there's this, I think there's this mechanism, this underlying mechanism, this wiring. Right. And so the question is, does it just apply to food? I mean, it certainly, do, it certainly doesn't just apply to nicotine, right? Right. It doesn't apply just to caffeine. I mean, there's certainly uh, caffeine is reinforcing, right? I mean, you, you have for many people, not everybody, food is reinforcing, right? Some people eat just in order to be able to live, but for other people, there's a real need, right? And the question, I mean, I, the, the question is, does that mechanism apply beyond just, you know, uh, food and nicotine, um, and is that mechanism more than just the learning and memory circuits of our brain? Mm. Right? And that was the, really the question, um, you know, the hypothesis right, um, that underlies that underlies the new book. Well, you talked about this struggle um, in the end of overeating, where you know you would see the cookie and. I think there was even an anecdote where you would, you know, leave a couple cookies on the counter and say, okay, I'm not going to have it, I'm going to resist the urge, and then you'd go out, and later on that day, you'd sort of reward yourself by <laughs> eventually uh, having 
a cookie, it becomes bigger and bigger in uh, in one's head when yeah. I mean, when you try to resist it, because it, once it grabs your attention and then you're focused on resisting it, I mean, then um, the attentional bias is even increased. Right. right exactly. Um, but what and, I, and and again, if you what happens? I mean, you you could have predicted this, right? Take you know you took take. We used to, when I, you know, certainly when I was growing up, we used to eat three meals a day. We, uh, food wasn't layered and loaded with sugar. Maybe we'd have some sugar for dessert, right? Um, but it wasn't all the time, you know. But now, you know, over the last 40, 50 years, we take sugar, fat, and salt, put it on every corner, make it available 24-7, make it socially acceptable to eat any time, constantly bombarded with food and food cues, right? So my brain, my brain basically becomes, you know, I mean, I'm constantly, uh, you know, as you said, opening that ice cream. Absolutely. And, you know, you sort of talk about it in the book, this idea that um, people become fixated on an idea. Um, and it sort of becomes an a, intentional a, bias. An intentional bias. Right. And it sort of becomes uh, reinforcing. And you, you, when you're a microphone, started that terrible noise, feedback. right? No one was listening to you. We were sort of that, that captured us, right? If a bear walks in here, they, everyone stops listening to us. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> you, you, you're not going to get political on me, are you? You're not going to ask whether the whole election is a question. No, we're not going to do that. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to go down that path. Um, no, you're not. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to uh, sort of lead you down that path. I said, thank you. <laughs> so, um, so give us your thoughts on how, well, tell us, you know, give us your definition of capture, and if you could sort of give us examples, present-day examples of, of um, so, how we're seeing it. So um, very interested in that something seizes my attention. And that, that mechanism by the way something seizes my attention. Right? I mean, there's obviously, there can be physical characteristics, it can be a light, it can be a sound, it could be something running across here. Anything that's unusual, anything that's novel. Right? And there's an automaticity to that. Right? So there's a lot of things, I mean, out of a thousand stimuli in this room, what captures my attention? Where am I, you know, just automat there's an automaticity to, to looking. I mean, William James said it a hundred years ago, right? What is it about something that, what's that force, right, that focuses my attention? But I don't think it's just attentional bias. Right? I think there's, the, there's that connection between attentional bias and an affective response. So something that captures my attention can also change how I feel. So why does that, that chocolate chip cookie, if it's sitting there and it's hot and it's gooey um, and I can smell it and I want it, right? I mean, why does that capture my attention? Because I've learned to associate, you know, as I'm eating it, right, it's going to make me feel good. I'll be zoned out. I'm not, you know, it'll relieve. And I think this goes to Dr. Eppel's point that I, that I really didn't get, to be honest. For, you know, and I would sort of poo-poo it, and I didn't understand it. Um, but does it all, I mean, the, the role of stress. I mean, what is stress? I mean, stress is something that I want to change how I feel, because that's making, stress makes me feel bad, so I want to do something to change it. 
that, that chocolate chip cookie. So this, the, but capture is this attentional bias, I think, as I, you know, and an affective response to make me feel better, right? And a sense that there's a loss of control, this is happening, there's an automaticity. But it's not just things that can make me feel better that can capture my attention. You know, what about going over the, you know, the bridge or the, that ledge? Things that can make me feel bad. So what's anxiety? Isn't there an attentional component to that? Right? Mm -hmm. what, what's depression? And that's really how the, you know, the latest book got focused. You know, the, very interested in what is depression. Right. You know, I mean, obviously, the question was, you know, was always a biochemical abnormality. Yeah, there was there was certain mono uh, amine chemical imbalance, yeah. and no one really has ever established that. But that attention to the negative, mm. right, the, the attention on the self, and then um, that takes um, center stage in my head. And then that makes me feel bad, and then I start paying attention to feeling bad, so I get caught in this feedback cycle. Isn't that the same thing as the chocolate chip cookie, I mean, or the cigarette? Right, exactly. There's some pretty cl clear parallels there. Um, so the question is, is that right? I mean, are those, I mean, if you look at that range of, I mean, what's the eating disorders? What's anorexia, right? Is it the fear of food? It becomes center stage, you know, that I'm going to get fat. Is it going to be the control? If I can slice that apple in 80 pieces and eat only one every hour, I feel better. I mean, is that what the, that center stage of that control or that fear in the eating disorders? What's hypochondriasis, mm -hmm. right? I have a symptom, right, that I just can't shake thinking about my heart rate. So what's the role of attentional bias and this affective response? Mm -hmm. right. Well, it would seem that there are some people who are more prone to these behaviors. You mentioned anxiety, uh, depression. How much, to what extent do you think uh, you know, genetic susceptibility plays so, into this? So, so I, I don't know that answer, right? But certainly some of us, I mean, you pick what's going to become salient. For some of us, it may be food, or others, it may be you know, myself, I mean, you know, the, you know, the negative aspects of myself, or it could be a drug, or it could be money, you know, pick what becomes salient. I mean, are there, I mean, it goes back to that argument, you know, 20, 30 years, is, is there such a thing as an addictive personality? Right. I mean, who was, I mean, the, you know, I mean, are there individuals um, for which nothing is salient? Right, so if you, 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 you take, you know, the, the pilot who landed on the East River. Sullenberger. Right, I mean, on the, on the, the Hudson, right? Right, yeah. And so you take, um, you take him and, you know, what's his emotional reactivity? I lose both engines. I would be sitting there if I'm flying that plane. Holy <laughs> what am I going to do? I'm going to have a high affective response. Is this guy just so cool that nothing becomes salient? Right? He, I mean, and he's just, he, no problem, I'm just going to la land the plane in the middle of the river. Is that, is that a, a low D2 receptivity? Is that a genetic trait? Right? I mean, or it, was it his training that made him so cool so he can, when in that state, 
right? Losing both engines. I know how to do this. I can put the plane down. Um, and then it's only two days later that it really hits them. What, what did I do? Right? I, would, I would think that it would be some combination of both. But I would, I would think that, particularly in a situation like that, the training would be a huge factor. I mean, I could see any one of us who doesn't have a pilot's license freaking out in a situation like that. But if there were a child, for example, um, choking in the front row here, I think with your years of training as a pediatrician, you could calmly, to some extent calmly, you know, uh, rectify that situation. So, so, you know, what is it? I mean, I mean, are there, um, I mean, Rich Rawson, who I think is one of the great um, addiction experts down Southern California, I said, could you make me into a meth addict? Right. Uh, you know, I have never done it. And he said, absolutely. So, I mean, it, I, mean, is, I mean, is what we become sensitized to, what our neural circuits become sensitized to, the results of a thousand or a million exposures over a lifetime? So if you put me in that environment and you, can you sensitize my nervous system, even though I would find it repugnant today, I mean, and if you take from birth, I mean, are, 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 it's hard to believe that we're sensitized at birth, before birth, maybe. You know, my sense is that some of us are maybe more, a, a little higher set on dopamine receptors. Maybe we're a little more outward. Some of us may be a little more inward. But I don't think it's what becomes salient, I don't think is predetermined. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, right. My guess is it's experience and the thousands, millions, trillions of experiences that we accumulate over a lifetime and those responses um, um, that really result in who I am and what captures me. Well, one thing I'd like to touch on before we uh, move on to a question from the audience, we have time for that, is um, you know, in the book you describe in really elaborate detail some fascinating case studies. You, know, you open with David Foster Wallace, this brilliant writer who becomes fixated or, or captured by these negative thoughts and self-doubt. About himself. About himself, and, uh, which people uh, around him just refer to as depression but there's something uh, much greater going on there. And you talk about um, you know, Sylvia Plath, and you talk about Hemingway, and the doubts that, that he had, and all these really brilliant uh, people um, who became captured or fixated on these thoughts. So for those in the audience today, um, you know, is there, you know, what can you do to break free of, of capture? So it's all, it's, I've, the reason I focused on them is because it's sort of the gift. Right? I mean, we have not yet, I mean, we can't even decide probably in this room what addiction is, or what the exact circuitry is, or what the real role of fMRI is. I mean, this was, I remember about six, seven years ago, uh, I was at a reception, at a dinner, I was sitting next to Dr. Adler, and she said, you know the difference between the mind and the brain, don't you? Right? I mean, and it's taken me a long time to, to grasp that basic, um, you're a psychology major, right? Yes, sir. Right? I mean, you know, you know the difference. But why I went to um, the, David Foster Wallace, I mean, and others, because they, the gift of the humanities, they are able, in words, you do this, right, as a journalist, 
I mean, those words try to try to portray what is going on, perhaps in a better way than any fMRI goes. So, so Wallace understood. Let me just um, let, let, let me let me read you what Wallace's uh, answer was to your question. Um, um, he was very interesting. I don't know how many of you know a lot about David Foster Wallace, um, but um, conquered um, really his alcohol addiction, was sober for um, a good 30, uh, 30 years, um, primarily his uh, drug addiction. Um, and every night, um, it, I mean, he, he really was a firm believer in AA. And um, the, he wrote, the, the, his answer was, is, is a little more spiritual, and though, but, but in it, I think, is the scientific answer. There's no such thing as not worshiping, right? Whether it's that cookie or that money or whatever. Everybody worships, he says, okay? Our only choice, then, is what to worship. Uh, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some form of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or, or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive, right? So it's money or gambling or sex or fame or power. So, if, you know, so he, I mean, if you believe that, the answer that Wallace would give you, and I sort of regret never being able to talk to him about this, is the only way you can overcome capture to something is to be captured by something else. Now, uh, the, the Buddhists in the room will say, no, I can turn down the noise level. Right? I can change, right, um, change the valence of the stimuli. And maybe that will work, um, but I think for most of us, I mean, if you look at AA, what, there's a substitution going on. Um, that's not my friend, that's my enemy, right? Um, and I'd rather have the fellowship, I'd rather have the sobriety, the camaraderie. Uh, the camaraderie. I substitute for that, right? And if you look at tobacco, I mean, if you really ask the question from a policy perspective, what worked on tobacco? And this is where you know, Stan and I will disagree and he'll yell at me and whatever. Is it really the law, laws and regulations and taxes that change? I mean, no one in this room will smoke, right? But certainly no one will smoke publicly and probably no one will smoke, right? And, and, and what did we change? Was it the laws that did it or is it, or is it the taxes? Or did we really change how we perceive the stimulus, right? We used to think it was my friend and we really changed the societal view of it. Now those taxes and regulations help along 50 years of changing. But how do you change? I mean, food is much harder. I mean, tobacco is easy. I can live without tobacco. I can't live without food. I mean, if, you, if I demonize, we demonize the tobacco industry, right? We can't demonize food because that's the stuff of the eating disorders, mm. right? But in the end, how do I change how I, it's processed foods, it's sugar. I mean, it's sugar and fat, it's sugar, fat, and salt, feed whatever it is, it is, right? You gotta change how people look at it. It's, is it something I want, or is it something that's the enemy? Right. 
And I think that is one of the things that's going on now. Um, we're sitting here in San Francisco, and you know, election day is coming, and there's you know three um, initiatives. You're going to vote for the Sota? Um, well, I, you're, I, you're a New York Times reporter. As a New York Times reporter, I, I'm objective. You don't vote. On the you, you ceased all your First <laughs> Amendment rights. I, I, <laughs> yes. uh, I, so I vote, but I can't advocate. Right. Or I don't uh, disclose publicly what so, you, uh, whether I'm a Republican or a I mean, the, 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 or the real <laughs> question, I, I think, for the lawyers. Can it's I a just, mystery. To, what, last point. The last point. The, the, last point. The, the real point for the, the lawyers is can you, over the next 20 years, I mean, there are certain substances that are reinforcing. If we can't agree on the word addiction, at least can we agree on certain things are reinforcing, right? And can you convince the, ne the next generation of people on the court, on the high court, that not all substances are entitled to the same level of protection as political speech, right? And, 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 and that's, I mean, can we have the neuroscience that shows, see, that's salient, whatever it is, right? <laughs> I mean, can you, can <laughs> I mean, th 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 that I think is, can you work and be able to, to show that there are certain um, stimuli that do have an effect on neural circuitry, especially of children, that will stay with somebody for a lifetime, and that's not the same thing as political speech. Yeah, that's correct. Well, so now I, I want to, we're, it's about four, we're out of time. I want to take just two questions from the audience, make them good, give these guys a hard question. Uh, they are up for it, and please, you can also address Anahad too. <laughs> so. We've got one over here, Kimber Stanhope. Okay. Um, Dr. Kessler, can um, we get your opinion as to the plausibility of sugar eventually being removed from the grass list? Generally, maybe explain generally regarded as safe. Grass. Yeah, no, I, I know, but others don't. <laughs> the, 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 the question is, could it be uh, removed from the grass list? Yes, um, actually that was the conclusion of Dr. Lustig's presentation. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I was on a panel with former, uh, all the former FDA commissioners, and someone asked about the grass list, and I said, look, the grass list is a joke. Um, uh, it's, an, it's a good hour discussion, right, because basically there has to be a consensus about safety. Well, what That's if what generally we... recognized as safe. So if there's 10 experts, right, everybody says this is safe, but the industry has been able to, to um, uh, regulate, I mean, basically decide, what they self-determine what mm. is grass, although, I mean, there are, I think there's been, there was grass affirmation back years ago on sweetness. Look, it's a very, it's, in essence, it's a powerful substance that makes us feel better. Right. Um, just because you could you get it off the grass list, sure. Does that? But where does that put it? Right. Um, okay. You're not going to be. You, you have. Again. I mean, where where I would go. I mean, next administration. I mean, 15 days from now. <laughs> right. Where I would go. I I would on front of package, uh, make companies list the top three ingredients. 
and have to do it in a name that we understand. Right there, just, just list the top three ingredients on the front of the package. And um, I mean, there are ways, I think, to change how we view sugar and view sweetness. Um, I think that's probably more important in the long run. Yeah, you can get it off the grass list. Great. But you One don't sound question. like you think that would be all that effective. I, I don't think that's the. I don't think that's going to be the answer. You're going to have to change how we look at that substance, right? You're going to change. I mean, it's like nicotine. It's like tobacco. I mean, do I want it or do I not want it? How do I respond to it? You're cha you got, it's, it's a perceptual change on the parts of the American people on what's good for me and what I want to put in my body, and that's not just. And believe me, this is a big country and the. It needs to be regulated, and there are regulations and stuff like that, right? But it's not just about regulation. It's how we perceive things that I think, in the end, uh, make a, it's much more effective than any law or uh, litigation. I, I, I think that beautiful point, and I would love to end there and have the last comment be from Anahad. Well, I was going to say that just from my reporting, um, what's going on with the soda taxes and you know this big battle um, involving the soda industry? We have these taxes on, on in four different cities coming up that people are voting on. Um, I think you know there's sort of both of these things uh, uh, that come into play. I think um, you know obviously there's the regulation aspect, but I think industry may also be worried that uh, having sin taxes on their products is going to dissuade people. It is happening. Giving them information. Okay. That I mean, this who would have ever thought? I mean, I have to. Good for you. The public health community, Kelly Brunell, made a decision 10 years ago, right? To, you made a decision to put um, soda in the crosshairs. It has had a demonstrable impact on changing how we view those products, right? The world has changed on that and it needs to continue to change. Regulations, grass lists, soda taxes are all steps. Right? But in the end, um, it's how, you know, it's what our values are, how, how we look at it. I think, um, you know, no one would have predicted the effect on, on soda uh, 10 years ago. And I think that, that, I think the tide is really changing dramatically. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.